Yet I have to point out that the kind of reasoning on display here is not only entirely familiar to me, but of a particular kind that even I, during my own years as an atheist, could not in all intellectual conscience endorse. I'm William O'Flaherty from EssentialCSLewis.com, and this is the first of a series of eight shows focusing on a book from Peter S. Williams entitled C.S. Lewis vs. the New Atheist. Today's program will provide an overview of the entire book, and then the spotlight will shine on each of the six chapters, followed by a final concluding chapter and recap of the series. So again, that's eight shows in all. Now, previously I did a single interview with Peter S. about his book, where only really a small slice of the entire book was discussed. That's because in addition to talking about that book, I had him give details about himself and other books he has written. So that interview you might find useful, so I've included a link in the show notes about that. When you go to EssentialCSLewis.com, you can give a listen to that. Well, before welcoming Peter S. William to today's show, I need to introduce someone else. That's Peter Byram, who is actually sharing co-hosting duties with me. Now, previously, Peter was with me to share about films he had edited from the 2013 C.S. Lewis Symposium, where Peter S. Williams was a member of the panel on that third video. Welcome back to All About Jack, Peter B. Good to be with you again. Now, actually, Peter will be sharing more about himself at the end of the program, but let's get uh, his co-hosting duties started by having him introduce our main guest, Peter S. Williams. Well, thank you. It's a great pleasure to introduce Peter S. Williams. He is a Christian philosopher and apologist and assistant professor in communication and worldviews at Gimla Column School of Journalism and Communication, which is part of NLA in Norway. Peter also works with the UK Damaris Trust, leading philosophy conferences for A-level students and undertaking writing, speaking, debating and broadcasting engagements. Peter has authored several books, including A Skeptic's Guide to Atheism, a Faithful Guide to Philosophy, and, of course, C.S. Lewis versus the New Atheists. So, Peter S. Williams, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks very much, guys. It's a privilege to be here with you. And on a personal note, it's great to be co-hosting uh, Peter S. Williams because um, his work has been very helpful and influential for me, both as a Christian, but also in the run-up to becoming a Christian as well. And uh, we've had a lot of fun working together, doing little things to promote the uh, C.S. Lewis uh, book on YouTube and so forth. So it's great to be involved with you two. Well, let me jump in with uh, just to uh, help avoid any confusion. Because both of my uh, co-host and guest is named Peter, we'll refer to my co-host as Peter B. and our guest as Peter S., now, again, today, the purpose of our show is to provide an overview of the entire book by Peter S. Williams. That title, again, is C.S. Lewis versus the New Atheist. Now, this is somewhat of a tall task, as that means we won't be getting into very much detail today. However, such a summary does provide a great way to inform you of what you will encounter in the book. Well, Peter S., now, your book, again, C.S. Lewis versus the New Atheist, what's so special about say, imagining C.S. Lewis debating people like Richard Dawkins as opposed to any other Christian apologist who's actually still alive today? Uh, well, of course, many Christian apologists who are alive today have uh, debated or um, at least uh, written in uh, relationship to thinking of, of people like Richard Dawkins and the other new atheists. Um, 
So there's some uh, interest in, in, in thinking about the, the sort of the dialogue between the, the thought of, of Lewis, who can't actually debate them because he's, uh, of course, um, long dead, this being the 50-year anniversary of his death uh, last year in 2013 when the, the book came out. Um, but another thing that that allows me to do in the book is to to point out uh, a major sort of intellectual uh, linkage between um, the Oxford of C.S. Lewis's day and the new atheism of today, uh, in as much as um, Lewis, when he was an atheist, uh, as I show in the book, held many thoughts and ideas um, that are startlingly similar to uh, the ideas of today's new atheists, uh, and that today's new atheists uh, did their uh, doctorates, most of them at Oxford, uh, under the tutelage of people who would have been colleagues of Lewis when Lewis was at Oxford. So uh, people like um, A.J. Ayer, uh, for example, famous logical positivist philosopher, um, and so there are actual sort of um, intellectual links between the kind of philosophical atheism that was uh, at large at Oxford in the in the early to mid 20th century uh, and the kind of thinking that uh, predominates uh, in the new atheist movement. Um, so that's a sort of long winded way of saying um, that the atheism of, of Lewis's earlier days and uh, Oxford in the early 20th century um, continues to influence today's so-called new atheism, uh, which isn't really new, uh, but a, a harking back uh, to a, an atheism of the early to mid 20th century. Now, Peter S., I find that very interesting, what you're saying about how um, you've basically characterised the new atheism as actually being an old atheism, mm. actually rather sort of old-fashioned, hence why you're harking back to the days of, uh, you know, when they would have been studying at the time Lewis was alive. But you start your first chapter, which is actually called Old Time Atheism. Now, you start that with a quote from the um, comedian Frank Skinner, um, mm. who says that being an atheist is what's cool now, uh, but it's kind of hip and um, trendy these days to be a disbeliever. So, um, what, why do you think it is the case that atheism actually seems to be in fashion now, given that it's got so much old-fashioned baggage like that? Well, that's right. I think if you distinguish between um, the intellectual content of the new atheism uh, versus the, the sort of um, uh, the packaging, as it were, in, in sort of sociological or, or even sort of advertising uh, terms, I, I think there Skinner is talking about um, the sort of sociological context rather than the uh, intellectual content. Um, and in, in that terms, it does seem that, that particularly um, since uh, the terrorist attacks of September 2001, uh, which was what started um, Sam Harris uh, writing his first book, The End of Faith, which sold a lot of copies and showed publishers that there was actually a public appetite uh, for uh, anti-religious polemic, um, which was uh, then followed by folks like Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens and Daniel Dennett and so on. Um, the, the the sort of publishing phenomenon of having uh, bestsellers uh, of anti-theistic, anti-religious writings 
sprang from there and i think that's part of the sort of sociological uh context of of the thing that uh people were were wanting some sort of response to religion uh in general although although sparked by a you know a a particular uh subculture of uh, islamic religion um the new atheists will tend to to paint uh all sort of religion with the the same broad brush and to then fold in uh, what is actually, if you read their books, mainly a, a criticism of Judeo-Christian religion, uh, sort of piggybacking on the back of um, uh, the public ap- appetite uh, for anti-religious polemics sparked by um, Islamic uh, terrorism uh, in the States uh, in 2001. Now, your second chapter, uh, Peter S., is entitled The Positively Blunt Sword of Scientism. You kick off by noting something very important about the early career of C.S. Lewis and the influential uh, atheists who were his contemporaries. Who were they briefly, and how are they like or unlike the names of the people we've heard of today? When Lewis was uh, an undergraduate and then later uh, himself a professor at Oxford, he was um, contemporaneous uh, with uh, big-name atheist uh, philosophers such as A.J. Ayer, uh, Anthony Flew, uh, Gilbert Ryle, P.F. Strawson, um, as well as being in the same grouping of um, uh, intellectuals as the, the Cambridge-educated philosopher Bertrand Russell, uh, for instance, um, was a big name uh, from that time as well. And um, all of these are um, members of the, the so-called you know, analytic tradition of, uh, of philosophy, um, but particularly when you're looking at uh, A.J. Ayer, um, he's part of the, um, the positivist, uh, verificationist school of thinking. Uh, and even if you think of some of the early work of um, Anthony Fleur as well, these are philosophers who are concerned with um, whether or not talk about God uh, is, is even meaningful, let alone uh, whether it can be uh, thought to be true or false or have you know more reasons for believing or for not believing their 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 primary concern is with uh, the meaning and use of of language uh, as we talk about god um but i actually uh, put an emphasis on the book on the, on the fact that that lewis had come to oxford under the influence of of reading um uh, earlier generations of atheists like uh, david hume uh, like uh, the roman uh, writer lucretius and so on who um didn't question the the meaningfulness of of talk about God, uh, but who were more interested in the the broader metaphysical questions of of whether or not God was real or not, whether there were better reasons for or against uh, belief. And and Lewis never really got subsumed uh, into this question of the the meaning of God, although he wrote about that uh, in some very uh, interesting material on that, um, he never sort of got sucked into the logical positivist way of, of trying to dismiss the whole debate about God uh, and sidetrack it into a debate about meaning. And, and that was a, a really good thing, um, because this whole emphasis of the positivists like Air on, on the meaningfulness of God talk was a very short-lived chapter uh, in analytical philosophy. And when philosophy came back uh, again out of that sort of positivist era, um, the question of God's actual existence or not came back onto the table. And Lewis continues to to speak in a relevant way to those uh, questions 
because he he didn't get sucked into the sort of positivist uh, discussion of the meaningfulness uh, of God talk, and th- and that's kept Lewis's writing relevant uh, to the the whole philosophy of religion, really, um, as it is discussed today. Uh, in a way that the you know reading language uh, truth and so on by A. J. Eyre, um, that is a sort of historical of historical interest, but not part of the the contemporary discussion. Whereas uh, much of Lewis's thought is very much part of the contemporary discussion uh, in the philosophy of religion. Now, chapter three, um, that's actually titled with a question. It's a desire for divinity? Question mark. Um, now, your focus has to do with what is known as the argument from desire in that mm. chapter, or AFD for short. Now, Lewis's search is often summarised in a term that he used, which is the uh, the German word. Um, I think it's pronounced uh, Zengzuch. Uh, apologies to any German listeners if I've been getting that wrong. But uh, so that's the word. So what does this word mean and how did that impact Lewis's life? Sure, well, it's... Um... It's a term from romantic literary fiction and uh, the sort of romanticism movement in, in literature. Uh, it doesn't have a direct translation in English, unfortunately, but it, it means something like, uh, you might say, a, a sort of nostalgic sense of longing. Um, it describes responses to the world that have this sense of, of longing for, but also displacement or alienation from some object of desire. Um, it's what Lewis elsewhere, um, particularly, of course, in his autobiography, Surprised by Joy, uh, called joy, or uh, what in um, The Pilgrim's uh, Regress he, t- he called the, the romantic uh, desire. And he uses this uh, various terms for this uh, sense of longing for something that lies outside of our reach. It's, it's a longing that is is occasioned by various experiences of things in the world, particularly, um, uh, say, the beauty uh, of nature. Uh, and we have uh, this longing for something uh, arises within us, but we find that nothing within the, the natural world around us can actually satisfy this longing. So nature awakens this longing within us, but fails to satisfy it. Uh, and this uh, sort of quest for, for for thinking how to understand and deal with this sense of unsatisfied longing uh, dominated a large part of, of Lewis's thinking and, and his journey uh, from atheism to uh, at least uh, idealism as he uh, progressed towards belief in God. The argument from reason is your fourth chapter. This could be abbreviated AFR, I believe. Among the points you make, you speak about Dawkins again and in his, quote, faith in naturalism and his notion that, quote, the mind is nothing but brain. What are some of your key points related to this? Well, I think the key point to make about this is that uh, naturalists self-confessedly lack a materialistic or naturalistic account of mind um, it is an act of faith in that sense in the truth of naturalism uh, for Dawkins to say uh, that he believes that mind is nothing but uh, the brain or nothing but a material thing nothing but part of the the natural world um, he doesn't think that because he can give an account of mind in naturalistic terms he thinks that because he believes that naturalism is true and since 
mind obviously exists, it must be explicable in naturalistic terms, but you can't actually produce that explanation for you. Um, so it's a, this is a deduction from his belief in naturalism uh, about what mind is, uh, rather than a result of, uh, you know, his science or his philosophy uh, of mind. I think that's a very important point to make. Uh, and then looking on in terms of the argument uh, from reason, uh, Lewis uh, starts from, again, the obvious fact that we have mind and we use it for, for reasoning uh, and uh, goes through a number of different ways uh, in which it is very uh, difficult or impossible, uh, he would argue, to, to actually uh, fit mind within a, a naturalistic, materialistic picture of reality. Um, you can't have both and since we obviously do have mind and we are reasoning if you want to be rational then you have to give up a materialistic naturalistic worldview well now chapter five that is titled the problem of goodness and that's interesting because a lot of the time people talk about the problem of evil and they ask questions about how can we make sense of pain evil and suffering but presumably that's not the only take that you're going for in this chapter you're actually addressing something to do with Lewis's views on, well, how do we also know what goodness is as well? That's right. right. It's, and this is a, this is a, a, you know, a, a problem that Lewis, as an atheist, uh, was very much concerned with. This was not just an abstract intellectual issue for Lewis as a, as a, as a thinker, but also a very lived issue. You know, this is a, a man who lost his mother to cancer when he was a young child, uh, who um, had very bad experiences uh, of uh, school and boarding school, uh, who um, lived through the trenches of World War One and was invalided out of World War One uh, when uh, a shell uh, exploded, uh, giving him shrapnel injuries and uh, blowing up uh, his sergeant uh, next to him. Uh, so this is a very uh, visceral issue for Lewis as well as an intellectual one. But in wrestling with it, he came to the point of saying, if I'm if I'm calling certain things evil and my argument against a God is that there are things in the world that are really objectively evil such that I can say if there were a God, he shouldn't allow that. He shouldn't allow that to happen. And since it has, therefore, there's no God. If that's my argument, there is a there's a sort of presupposition to my argument, which is that there is such a thing as real objective evil. And how do you define or, or, or know about evil except in relationship to knowing good? Evil is what it what should not be in contrast to what should be. But then how do we get this idea of of how things should be if naturalism is true, if, if all there is is just the way things are? Uh, how can you bring in the idea of a way things should be, even if they fail to be that way, unless you're bringing in some sort of transcendent, world transcending concept of the way things should be? Uh, and so Lewis um, himself came to the position of thinking, as he said, that atheism on that argumentative basis was too simple, um, because even to put the, the argument from evil was to invite a sort of parallel opposite argument from good, as it were, uh, which we would recognise as the, the, the sort of moral argument that Lewis talks about, uh, for example, in the, the first book of, of Mere Christianity. Well, our time is going to quickly get away from us. We've just got one more real question to kind of pitch. 
dealing with the sixth chapter. You call it Jesus in the Dock. In this chapter, you mention that Christopher Hitchens didn't exactly like, quote, the idea of vicarious atonement, and then Hitchens states that Lewis was troubled by it. What does Hitchens say, and is he accurate about how he presents Lewis? Yeah, sure. Christopher Hitchens says um, that the idea of vicarious atonement uh, of the sort that so much troubled even C.S. Lewis, uh, he says, and he uh, talks about um, the story of Abraham, and uh, this time it's not a, a father trying to impress God, but God trying to impress humans by sacrificing his son. And I suppose that's, that's relatively accurate, really. There's a, I've got a quote from C.S. Lewis uh, from Mere Christianity, who says there that vicarious atonement, quote, does not seem to me quite so immoral and so silly as it used to. Um, so even the way Lewis phrases it there indicates that he it does seem somewhat immoral and silly to him as a, as a theory of the atonement. And um, Lewis famously gives his own theory of atonement, um, not one that I particularly find any more helpful myself, uh, although I do uh, find what Lewis said about, about myth and the atonement and the way in which um, the, the crucifixion was God's true myth, uh, speaking to humanity at, at a mythical level, but also being a historical reality, unlike um, other pagan uh, myths that Lewis was was into. Um, so, yeah, Lewis uh, certainly uh, had some difficulties with the theory of vicarious atonement. And I think, you know, as I said, I don't find his alternative theory particularly useful, but he wisely says about that theory that if you don't find it helpful, well, forget about it and leave it aside because... As a Christian, you're not called to believe in a particular theory of the atonement. You, know, you don't have to believe a particular theological theory in order to be a Christian. You have to believe in the atonement in order to be a Christian. Um, it's just like, um, you know, you can you can use a television by knowing how to turn it on and what change the channels and so on. Um, that's the main thing about television. Um, you don't have to really understand about electronics and how the television works. Um, that's not the primary thing. Um, so I think it, it's it's good that Lewis, when he puts forward his own alternative to the, to the vicarious atonement theory, uh, says, but, you know, this is not the main thing. Um, the main thing is actually relating uh, to God through Christ. All right. And with that, unfortunately, we're going to have to end this overview of C.S. Lewis versus the New Atheist. Be sure to tune into the next episode of this eight part series that will go into more details about the first chapter. That first chapter is entitled Old Time Atheism. If you're listening to this as the shows are being released, then you'll have to wait at least a week to hear it. But if you're listening to this later, then you can stop by EssentialCSLewis.com and then go into the uh, All About Jack show archives to hear the other ones in this series. You can also check out the show notes for this program for the links mentioned by visiting EssentialCSLewis.com or the podcast page where the audio you probably got it from, unless a friend shared it with you. That's allaboutjack.podbean, that's B-E-A-N dot com. This episode is the one for the overview for C.S. Lewis versus the New Atheist. Before leaving, let me have Peter B. tell a little bit more about himself. We shared at the very beginning, and then he's going to have uh, Peter S. tell about his website and some latest projects, and then I'll thank them before doing the final wrap-up. So, Peter B., 
Who are you? Ah, very good question. Um, well, I've, I've been doing things like sort of um, arts and theatre for a while. Um, I did uh, drama and theatre, for example, uh, when I was at university. But recently I've sort of moved over into creative media, sort of video editing and, and that kind of field, sort of bits of animation and graphics and that sort of stuff. So um, that's the kind of stuff that I do at the moment. Um, a lot of what I'm involved in is actually supporting Christian apologetics ministries through those kinds of tools, um, you know, whether it's, it's sort of video technical work, sometimes performing. And I've had the privilege of being involved with um, Peter S. Williams helping out with some of uh, some of his own projects. And um, we, we had a lot of fun uh, coming up with some sort of dramatized sort of story trailers and promotional videos for the uh, the C.S. Lewis versus the New Atheist book. Uh, had a lot of fun um, getting one of my friends involved on, on that one so that he could, um, uh, my friend Daniel Mumby, to um, impersonate and do the voice of C.S. Lewis. And, and then I took on the voices of his interlocutors, uh, people like Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins, you know, saying stuff like, that's totally unscientific and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, I, so I'm, I'm kind of a mixture of, of sort of arts, technical and uh, apologetics support because apologetics was incredibly important it was a vital part of my becoming a christian in the first place and peter williams of course was one of those influential people so it's it's great to be involved here now and actually having talked about some of the projects that i've been involved in with peter s williams i'd like to hear a bit more actually yes peter williams what have you got coming up at the moment in terms of uh, uh, your own projects and uh, perhaps tell us a little bit more about your website at the moment as well Folk can go to my website, uh, which is peterswilliams.com, peterswilliams.com, and there they can find a variety of free materials, uh, free papers, free media materials, my podcast channel's linked there. Uh, There's links to my YouTube channel, uh, where I both have videos going up there and also archiving uh, YouTube playlists on uh, a variety of, of topics and so on. Uh, you can even find out there's a link to uh, some of my composing uh, that I do in one of the sections there. In terms of the projects that I'm working on at the moment, um, hopefully uh, to come out in the next year or so, uh, I'm um, very privileged to be co-editing a book uh, with C.S. Lewis scholar called Michael Ward, uh, famous for uh, the book Planet Narnia. Uh, about the Narnia Code, if folk know about that, uh, the the planetary symbolism in the Narnia novels. And together we're editing a book called um, C.S. Lewis in Poet's Corner, uh, which is about the uh, celebrations of the 50th anniversary of C.S. Lewis's death last year in November uh, 2013, and in particular uh, the uh, service that was held at Westminster Abbey uh, to memorialise Lewis there in Poet's Corner. And we've drawn together a lot of the, the papers and presentations that folk made at various conferences uh, in, in the um, November celebrating 50th year, year since uh, Lewis's death. So we've got a, a, a good variety of, of papers, a uh, good rounded view of Lewis by some very well-known names that we're uh, uh, currently uh, getting them to uh, send us their stuff and we can edit it together uh, into a book. Well, then finally, all that's left for me to do is to first thank Peter B. for being co-host this week. Thanks, Peter B. Thank you. And then finally, let's thank, of course, Peter S. Williams, who has been our guest. Thanks, Peter Williams. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure.
the only other thing is just another reminder that this was just the first of eight shows. Be sure to tune in next time when we'll be dealing with the first chapter, Old Time Atheism.